I have a news clipping from a publication called The Week. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but in this publication they report this. The Trinity Broadcasting Network and Daystar Network have set up studios in Jerusalem preparing for the second coming of Christ. Daystar streams a live shot of the Mount of Olives where they believe Jesus' second coming will take place. That's true, by the way. I checked that out. You can Right now, you can get on the Internet and see, see a live picture of the Mount of Olives. Both organizations will broadcast shows in Hebrew to reach out to Jews. Uh, this is all a part of the denominational belief that Jesus is about to return and set up a physical kingdom in Jerusalem on David's throne. Now, what do you think about that? In other words, they believe it's going to happen. It's going to happen soon. Jesus is going to descend upon Mount of Olives. He's going to set up His kingdom in Jerusalem, and He's going to reign on David's throne restored in the city of Jerusalem. What do you think about that? i tell you what I think about that. I think that's completely unbiblical. There's not a shred of proof that that will ever happen. In fact, the Bible teaches that it exactly won't happen. I think that is just completely wrong. Now, when we say that in reaction to news like this that's happening right now, when we say that, you know the reaction we're going to get? The reaction is going to be, someone's going to say, do you really mean to tell me that you honestly think that Jesus is not going to reign on earth for a thousand years? You know, that's become such a popular idea. It is so commonly believed that Jesus is going to return and set up a physical kingdom here on earth to reign for a thousand years. That's so commonly believed that when we tell them that that's not in the Bible and we don't believe that, then they're going to question us, why not? Why don't you believe that? This concept that we've just described about Jesus returning, setting up a physical throne, reigning for a thousand years, that theory known in theological terms as premillennialism. We'll explain why here in just a minute. But almost everybody in the denominational religious world these days believes in premillennialism. Almost everybody thinks Jesus is going to do that. And so when we say, no, I don't believe that, then they'll probably be shocked and they're going to ask us why. And we need to be ready to give an answer. So tonight we're going to continue our series of lessons along the lines of making sure we're prepared when an opportunity comes to talk to people about spiritual things. You know, talking about premillennialism will not convert someone to the truth, but it might provide the open door that will give us an opportunity to discuss things with someone and then one thing may lead to another, and who knows where that may go. But we've got to be prepared to walk through that open door. We have to be ready to give an answer. And so we're going to continue our studies tonight with a, with a reviewing look at the theory of premillennialism, why it's wrong, and how we can answer that. All of our lessons have been along the lines of getting ourselves prepared, having our sort of our spiritual toolbox well-stocked so we have quick and ready answers to people. This is a very involved subject, premillennialism, but, but I think we can remember four or five basic points, and if we can remember those, we can engage people on this subject without fear, be ready to give an answer. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Thanks for being here. We appreciate your Sunday night uh, attendance very much and draw great encouragement from you. Thanks for being with us tonight. Let's talk about premillennialism. I think the first thing we've got to do is make sure that we ourselves understand the basics of the theory of premillennialism, what it actually teaches. 
I don't even know that everybody who believes it has a, a real grasp for the total theory because there are so many variations to the subject. But the general, the general theory of premillennialism goes like this. Imagine that this is a timeline. The ancient nation of Israel existed uh, back in times past, but of course they had become dominated by others. Uh, uh, in the time of the first century, of course, the Romans were dominating the Jews and they were subservient to them. And they'd been hoping and anticipating that the kingdom might be restored, that they could throw off their national oppressors and reestablish themselves as a great independent nation again. And so comes the time of Christ. And they're still under that Roman oppression, and they're looking for someone to deliver them from that. Jesus comes to earth, but what happens is that he wasn't able to do what he wanted to do. That he actually had come to restore the nation to Israel, but he was rejected by the Jews. They wouldn't have him as their king, and so they crucified him. Instead of making him their king and deliverer, they crucified him, and therefore the kingdom that Jesus had hoped to establish had to be postponed. Instead, the church was established. And so instead of establishing a kingdom on earth, as had been hoped for, because the Jews rejected Jesus and crucified him, the church was established instead as sort of an alternate, a, a plan B, if you will. And we are now living in what they would refer to as the church age. But this is a temporary time. And what's going to happen at some point, and they think probably in the very near future, is that there's going to be a resurrection of the, the righteous dead and a rapture of the saints. Have you ever heard people talk about the rapture? Now, the word rapture is not in the New Testament. If you ever talked to a premillennialist, a premillennialist you'd think, maybe the word was on every other page of the New Testament, because they talk about the rapture all the time. The word's not there, but the idea is, at some point, it's got to be soon, they think, the Lord is just going to snatch away all the righteous people. The righteous dead will be resurrected, and those righteous people still living will just be caught away. They'll just disappear, just mysteriously disappear from earth. They'll be gone. Uh, of course, what will result thereafter is a period of great tribulation on earth. For seven years it will last. The saints will be in paradise, but on earth there will be great tribulation, which probably is not too hard to imagine. If you take all the good people away and only the bad people are left, it would be a, a pretty sad sight on earth if that was to actually happen. Some of you will be familiar with a series of books and movies made from the books called the Left Behind series. Well, that's based on the idea that there were uh, of people left behind when the rapture has taken place. What will happen on earth during this period of great tribulation for seven years? Now, the premillennialist believes at the end of that seven years of, of great tribulation on earth, the Lord is going to return. He's going to come back. He's going to come back with the, with the saints who had been caught away or raptured. He's going to come back with His holy angels. When he returns, he will confront all the combined forces of evil on earth and the great battle of Armageddon will be fought. The battle of Armageddon will be fought. Jesus will win and the forces of evil will be defeated. The kingdom will be established and Satan will be bound 
according to premillennialism. Then, for a period of a thousand years, Jesus is going to reign on earth. He's going to be on David's throne, restored in the city of Jerusalem. Okay? So there's your thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, the wicked will be raised in judgment. And then, finally, the righteous will be assigned to heaven for eternity and the wicked assigned to hell for eternity. Now, notice the judgment is after the thousand-year reign. The thousand years is before judgment. It predates judgment. Therefore, it millennial, millennialism, a thousand years. The thousand years comes before the final judgment. It is pre-millennialism. Now, a much more obscure doctrine is the doctrine of post-millennialism. Post-millennialism says that the judgment will happen and then the thousand years will happen after the judgment. That's post-millennialism. But premillennialism is the popularly, popularly believed doctrine. And the reason it's premillennial is because the thousand years comes before the final judgment. Premillennialism. We, on the other hand, if, if, if they were going to describe us, they would describe us as amillennialists. We don't believe in a millennial reign of Christ on earth. We don't believe in pre- or post-millennialism. We don't believe that Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years on earth. So you might hear those three terms. Premillennialism, that's the common, that's the common doctrine that almost everybody you know in the denominational world believes that. There are a few who would identify themselves as post-millennialists. They think there'll still be a thousand year reigns, but after the judgment. We, they would identify us as a millennialist. Don't believe in a millennial reign of Christ on earth. Now why? Okay. Do you see that picture? I, I, I saw that, that chart is not original with me. I redid it here, but that layout has been around for several years. And I think it does a really good job of graphically picturing what this whole theory of premillennialism is about. That is premillennialism. Uh, and, and I think we need to have a good sort of working knowledge of what they're talking about. And a few things on that chart are important. The rapture, because they always talk about the rapture. The tribulation is going to happen. So after the rapture has happened, those left on earth will enter into seven years of tribulation. When Jesus comes back, the great battle of Armageddon will be fought, they claim. They take that out of the book of Revelation. Highly figurative expression in the book of Revelation that doesn't pertain to what they're talking about at all. But they get that battle of Armageddon from Revelation. They believe that happens when Jesus returns. When he wins the battle of Armageddon, he sets up his thousand-year reign on earth with his throne in Jerusalem. And that's why, as I was just reading to you earlier, the Trinity Broadcast Network and the Daystar Network are trying to make preparations in Jerusalem because they believe Jesus is coming back there and he's going to set up his throne there. So that's just how, how strongly... They believe that these things are so. When we tell them we don't believe that, we don't believe that theory of premillennialism, they're going to be shocked and they're going to ask us why. So let's be ready to give them a quick answer. Now, as I said, there's lots of variations on the theory of premillennialism. Almost everybody who believes it has some different little quirky take on some different part of what we just described. Then there are a lot of specific errors in what they teach. But 
I think the best approach in answering them, that's what our series on Sunday night's about, sort of coaching ourselves to be prepared to answer them. I think our best approach is to attack the very premises upon which the theory is based. If we can show that the theory is based upon false ideas and notions, in other words, if we can take the foundation out from underneath the theory, then whatever else they've taught based upon that flawed foundation will also crumble. And so that's what that's the way I like to approach this. And I think we can answer them. It's not hard. And I, I hope we can all feel confident to engage uh, people in this discussion. Here's what they teach. Here, here, are, here are the five basics of premillennialism. The first is that God did not fulfill all his land promises to Israel. You know, God had made promises starting to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He was going to give him a land. Three promises to Abraham. I'll give you a land. Your people will become a great nation. And through your seed, Jesus, shall all nations of the earth be blessed. That land promised to Abraham was repeated to, to uh, Isaac, repeated to Jacob. And there were specific territories that were to be included in the land that was promised to the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites. These folks argue that those land promises to Israel were never completely fulfilled. Now, they, got, they obviously got part of the land, but it's argued they didn't get all of the land. Now, if God made a promise, he's going to give them land, and he hasn't given them that land yet, then their argument is there must be a future time when he will, because God keeps his promises. If God promised it and he hasn't fulfilled it yet, then there has to be a future time coming when he will. Okay, that's their argument. Now, they go further to say that time had been planned when Jesus first came to earth. It was, an, it was the plan that Jesus would establish a physical kingdom at his first coming and that these unfulfilled land promises would come true then. The problem, of course, was that the Jews rejected him and his plans failed. That he had intended to do it wanted to do it, desired to do it, but couldn't because the Jews rejected him and his plans failed. Therefore, the church had to be set up. Sometimes they will use the expression a stopgap just to sort of hold place in time, sort of a, a plan B until Jesus could come back a second time and do what he failed to do the first time. The church was just a temporary measure, sort of a, uh, a fallback plan, if you will. And then finally, when Jesus returns, he will set up this kingdom. And, he, and all the promises to Israel of old will be fulfilled. And David will reign, I mean, excuse me, Jesus will reign on David's throne restored in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Now, you see how these, these five things sort of follow in order that they build upon one another? The problem is that each one of these things is false. Every single thing we just described is false. Not any of that is true to the Word of God. All of that is wrong, okay? So, in our answer, what we want to do is just go through them one at a time, have a quick verse to answer. And it's not hard. It's really not hard to answer that. First of all, what about the claim they make that God did not fulfill all of His land promises to Israel? Now, this is, really, this is really fundamental to the theory of premillennialism. And they really believe that, that, that God made promises. God keeps His promises, 
And, and since these promises haven't yet been kept, there must be a future time coming when he will keep the promises, that, that these land promises haven't been fulfilled. That is absolutely false. That's not true. And the verses we need to remember are in Joshua 21. These are, these are uh, a couple of verses there at the end of Joshua 21 that we really need to have at ready recall. Joshua 21, verse 43 and 45. The Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. I don't know about you, but I don't know how that could be stated any clearer. That is so just obvious that uh, once that uh, come, once once that. Um, is explained, or once those verses are brought to light, I think people should just give up their theory of premillennialism. It's so obvious. The, the land promise argument's just not there, right? Joshua 21, 43 and 45. We've got to remember those verses. All right. The second premise is Christ planned to establish a physical kingdom at his first coming. That Jesus really wanted to set up a, a throne and to be a king on earth. That's what's argued. Uh, that, that that was his desire so that he could fulfill those promises we were just talking about. They're wrong about that, and they're wrong about this, too. That's a false premise, and we know that because of what Jesus himself said in John 18, verse 36. In John 18, at verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Wait a minute. Shouldn't we believe Jesus on this? Shouldn't we believe what Jesus himself said about wanting to set up a kingdom? He said he didn't come for that purpose. And that his kingdom was not a physical kingdom of this world. And so Jesus said that was never his intention, to set up a physical kingdom on earth, even at that first coming. Premise number three is, although that's what Jesus wanted to do, they claim, they're wrong about that, but they say Jesus wanted to do it, but the Jews wouldn't let him. The Jews rejected him, and his plans failed. To me, this is probably the most amazing, but even potentially most blasphemous thing about the theory of premillennialism. Here is Jesus, God's only begotten Son, co-creator of the whole universe, but he comes to earth, and mortal men are able to stifle his plans. He wanted to, but he couldn't get it done because some men opposed him. Now, doesn't that sound really blasphemous? That you got Jesus, the Son of God, and yet men can halt him from being able to accomplish his purposes? I don't know, I don't know about you, but I don't like that. I, I, I don't even like the sound of that. But we know it's still also not true. In John 6, verse 15, John 6, verse 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. In the early part of Jesus' preaching and teaching, he was extremely popular. In fact, he stayed popular with the masses all the way through until the end. It was the leadership of the Jews who really rejected him. He was always popular with the people. And there was one point in time here early in his ministry when he could tell that they would, they would take him by force, it says, and make him a king. Does that sound like Jesus being rejected? He couldn't do what he wanted to do? And so he had to make a, an alternate plan. Doesn't sound like that to me. 
Jesus knew that they wanted him to be their king, so much so that he withdrew himself so that they couldn't do that. They didn't reject him for being king. Jesus didn't allow it to happen because it wasn't his purpose to be their physical king on earth. You see that? So again, this is a false premise when it says the Jews rejected him and his his plans failed. That's just a, a false argument. Argument number four, they keep building their case. Do you see they're wrong at every junction here? Part four of this is that the church was established as an afterthought, a stopgap until the kingdom could be set up. Um, I want you to, to understand that this diminishes the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it, that it was really only an afterthought, just... Well, what am I going to do now? I'll just throw the church in there instead because I couldn't do what I wanted to do. That's just absolutely false. In Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Emphasis right here on the fact that the church is a part of God's eternal plan or purpose. Now, that's, that would say it's not an afterthought, right? It's not some plan B or fallback uh, concept. The church was in God's mind from eternity, not an afterthought. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, this is another real important verse we've got to remember. Mark 9, verse 1, Jesus said to them, Verily I say to you, there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, wait a minute. They're saying Jesus couldn't establish the kingdom and had to set up the church instead. But Jesus said to some of those who were standing with him there in the first century, there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, wait a minute. The premillennialist says the kingdom hadn't come yet. We're still waiting for the kingdom. Did you that news story I read earlier? They've got that video camera set up on the Mount of Olives expecting Jesus to come back and set up his kingdom. We're still waiting for the kingdom. Kingdom hasn't the church they had to put they had to put church in there temporarily. We're still waiting for the kingdom to be established. Well, we got a big problem here, I tell you. We got a major problem. If that's the case, if what they're saying is true, we got a huge problem because Jesus said that some of the people he was speaking to would not die until they saw the kingdom come. So either Jesus was a liar, didn't know what he was talking about, or we've got some over 2,000-year-old people wandering around earth somewhere, or they're just wrong about that, right? And the answer is they're, they're just wrong about that. They're just absolutely wrong about that. The kingdom, of course, was set up Jesus didn't fail to set up his kingdom. His kingdom was set up. The kingdom is his church. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Here's another important verse to remember. Colossians 1.13 God hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Do you see here that these are past tense verbs? God has delivered us and he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Paul said to the Christians of the first century, God has already put us into the kingdom. Well, wouldn't that argue, therefore, that the kingdom is in existence already? And it is. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. 
And we need to be able to answer that. Finally, the last part of their argument. Again, what, what we're hoping to do is just take this thing apart, piece by piece. If we can take these five premises away from them, then we can destroy their theory. The last part of the theory is when Jesus returns, he will reign on David's throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. might ask the question, where did they get that anyway? Where did they get that idea of a kingdom that will last for a thousand years? Where did they get that? Well, the only place in, in the Scripture that talks about that at all is what Lee read for us earlier from Revelation chapter 20. And I want you to go back over there. We've done this exercise before, but let's do it again just so we feel comfortable being able to answer people when they ask us about the thousand-year reign. The only place in the whole New Testament that talks about a reign of a thousand years is Revelation chapter 20. Now, you know and, and, and should be able to explain very simply that the book of Revelation is a highly figurative book. It's full of symbols, of symbolic language. And therefore, you have to be careful about making literal applications of this highly figurative book. Lots of false doctrines in the religious world today are, are caused by people trying to force literal interpretations on the figurative things taught in the book of Revelation. But read, read me what Lee read earlier. Look at this just for a minute again. Revelation 20, beginning verse 1. I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should receive, he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. There's the thousand years, you see. Now, look at this verse. You might want to underline in your scriptures here, just to show that this is a highly figurative passage. It'd be a huge mistake to try to take this literally. First of all, verse 1. The angel came down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit. Underlined bottomless pit. Could there ever literally be a bottomless pit? That's an impossibility, right? Literally. That's a literal impossibility. You can dig a, a hole. You can dig a real, real deep hole. But any literal hole will have a bottom in it somewhere. Right? They take these drilling rigs and they drill, drill, drill deep for gas and oil and so forth. And they, they, may be, they may be several thousand feet down into the ground. But there's a bottom to that hole. Every physical hole or pit has a bottom in it. This pit was bottomless. Immediately it says figurative. Got to be figurative. Can't be literal. It's figurative. Then he talks about a great chain in his hand with which he binds Satan. Is there any physical, literal chain that could bind Satan? No. Because Satan's not a physical being, right? He's a spirit being. You can't bind a spirit being with a literal chain. That's figurative too, right? All right, now, when you, when you see that, you see that the context of this is talking figurative, symbolic, not literal. And then it talks about the thousand years. If everything else in these verses is symbolic and figurative, why would we snatch out the thousand years and say that's literal? doesn't make sense, does it? Then one more thing from this passage, and we'll move on quickly. Verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. I've suggested this to you before. 
But I think it makes a good question that really sort of stifles those who are making the thousand-year argument. We're trying to prove this is a figurative passage. They're trying to make it a literal passage. Ask your friend when you're discussing premillennialism, do you believe that during the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, that the only ones who will reign with Christ are martyrs who died for the cause. But not just any martyr, only those who were specifically martyred by having their heads cut off. Notice, it was the soul, John saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Christ, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Ask your premillennialist friend, do you think that only beheaded martyrs will reign with Christ during the millennium? And they will say no. Well, they've given up their argument again. Because again, they, they want to take just one small part of that passage and make it literal. And, and yet they regard all the rest of it as figurative. And they're wrong about that. It's just a misapplication of a figurative passage. And it leads to a mistake. What about the thousand years? The thousand year, the whole idea of a thousand years comes from a mistaken view of Revelation 20. But it's a false idea that Jesus is going to come back and set up his throne in Jerusalem and reign there for a thousand years in Acts 2, beginning verse 29. That sermon that we studied this morning, the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he said, David, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted. So on Peter goes to argue. Peter says, we're not waiting for Jesus to come back and begin his reign. Peter said, he's reigning already. And we believe that he is. He's reigning over his spiritual kingdom, the church. Another thing that's interesting is what's taught in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. It says, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together within the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Notice when the Lord does return, the righteous will be caught up into the clouds to be with Him. There's no indication that Jesus will ever set foot on planet earth again. The righteous will be called to meet Him in the clouds. And so... Uh, the theory of premillennialism is wrong at every turn. It's just wrong. Now, again, I don't think that this is a, a particularly difficult thing for us to be able to answer, and I hope that we can be confident to do so. Because if we have a chance to talk to our friends who have believed this false doctrine, and we're able to show very simply from the Scriptures that it can't be so, again, what I'm hoping is that opens a door. And then maybe they'll begin to question some of the other things they've been taught that are not true and begin a legitimate and honest search for the truth. That's, that's what we are hoping to accomplish. But we've got to be ready to give an answer if we're going to do that. And hopefully uh, we can feel confident in discussing this subject of premillennialism. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. As we always do, we're going to conclude our lesson with a song of invitation. If you are in need of our assistance to help make your life right with God, we are anxious to do so. If you need to obey that simple gospel plan of salvation, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, we'd be anxious to help you in your obedience or to study more with you if you need it. If you're a Christian already but you've fallen away, we urge you to come back to the Lord in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.